What's happening? This is Ryan for the Scale Up Show. I have Jason Smith, who is the founder of Clue, who is a five-time entrepreneur, took a year off to travel the world with his family, and has a really, really unique approach in terms of how he's handling and solving the pipeline gap problem. And so you're not going to want to miss this. It was an awesome episode, a lot, a lot of fun, and just great insights from Jason. Check it out. How do you grow like a VC-backed company without taking on investors? Do you want to create a lifestyle business, a performance business, or an empire? How do you scale to an exit without losing your freedom? Those are the questions, and this show is the answer. Welcome, everybody, to the Scale Up Show. This is your host, Ryan Staley, and I have a very special guest with me today. I have Jason Smith. Jason is the CEO and co-founder at Clue with a K, right? Jason is a five-time entrepreneur, previously was a VP of Special Project EA Sports, president of Vision Critical, which is now called Alita, where he grew the company from startup to 50 million. On top of it too, like starting five companies or being a five-time entrepreneur isn't enough, decided to take a leap year, was it a leap year or off year, right? Where he took his kids around the world with his wife, for a round the world trip. <laughs> Jason, welcome. Happy to have you on the show, man. So it was a bit, bit of a mouthful that I was trying to get in there at the end, but like, that's so impressive. That's why I stumbled over it a little bit. So. All good. Happy to be here, Ryan. And yeah, we could talk about the round the world trip all you want. That's probably more fun than the business <laughs> stuff. Well, we, we probably, we'll, I, I imagine we're going to get into that in the episode because that's, that's uh, uncommonly done, but very commonly talked about. Right. And so and one of the cool things is you have an AI powered competitive intelligence platform. So we'll talk about that too, because AI is kind of hot. So um, real quick before we do that, let's do a revenue rundown. So where are you guys at in, straight, in terms of the journey, in terms of your ARR? Ah, right on the spot, hey? I'm ARR of a private company. Um, I'll give you the range and do, uh, we're well into double digits I'm not, not going to like hump your leg for it. This is just so people have an understanding <laughs> of like where you're at in the journey in terms of stages. That's all. Ryan, I love it. It's like every VC call I've had where they keep asking and I try and find the way to kind of avoid it. But yeah, no, no like, look, we're at, we've, we've had, we've been lucky in doing that kind of the triple, 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 double, double approach to kind of growing the business and having funding rounds. So well into the double digit ARR um, with uh, about 500 clients. Okay, now. fantastic. And, and then like, how big is your team right now currently? 250 people spread across multiple offices around the world. We just acquired a company out of Boston uh, called Double Check Research that does win-loss interviews. Um, it's a services, the company that we're productizing. So that'll be product number two in the Clue Kit, where we're now offering kind of an integrated platform that does compete and buyer insights. So that that's kind of exciting. That added about 30 wow. people. Okay. So 250 people. Love, love the fact that you took a single product and grew it as big as you did. Like not a lot of companies have the discipline to do that. So it's, uh, it's, it's refreshing here. And it's, it's, uh, uh, let me put it this way. It sounds, it sounds like you have a master's in discipline for doing that. Um, you know, one of the things, and once you've, you've got a lot, I've got a lot of scars at, at five time. I've screwed up more than most and, you know, I keep screwing up and hopefully it's just not the same screw ups. But I think one thing that you learn early in, in building businesses is focus. There are so many different opportunities that you can chase. Many look spectacularly dazzling for you to chase. And the key is to focus your knitting and have something that you continue to execute on. Certainly with Clue as an example, like it was around competitive. And when we started, everyone said, yeah, I get competitive. That's a tiny little category. 
mm, not sure how many people care. And so I focused on that and started to dial it into something that now I think is slowly becoming part of the go-to-market stack for a lot of companies. Everyone has competitors. Everyone wants to know about those competitors. It's just a question of how much time they're going to spend, how much money they're going to spend. But, you know, it harkens back to a lesson that Bezos had at Amazon. Like, how long was Amazon known as a bookstore? Mm -hmm. They weren't building a bookstore. They were building something much better. But they focused on being a bookstore for a long time, dialing in logistics, dialing in their e-commerce engine, dialing in, frankly, the precursor to AWS. So, I'd, you know, those are good lessons is stay to your knitting, keep your focus, build build the niche that you need, and then we can expand from Love there. Love that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's sage advice. So real sage advice. So, so talk to us about Clue, like exactly, can you give us like a couple sentence summary of what it does and who it serves just so, so you the listener have contacts? Sure. Yeah, without being too pitchy, the high level is like, this is competitive enablement. So we, we try and collect as much intel as we can about your competitors, about your market, external to your organization and internal. So think like Slack, um, recorded calls, Gong, CRM notes, emails, that kind of thing. Combine that all to try and make sense of it. Give you a lens about what your competitors and market are doing. Uh, we leverage product marketers internally to help contextualize the intel that we do find. They convert it into insight that ideally is sales ready to help salespeople win the competitive deals they should have won. Love that. Very succinct. So is your like, is it the entire sales market? Or are you particularly focused on the top end of the market because of deal size or what's what's kind of like your TAM, if you will? Yeah, it's interesting. Sticking to our knitting, uh, we started very much. So Dell was Dell was one of our early clients um, that was um, gearing us to enterprise very early on. We had about a hundred users that then grew into now um, many tens of thousands of wow. users. So that kind of that got us down the enter- enterprise path. I'd say the majority of our clients are in that enterprise state. Um, and so down the SOC 2 compliance, multi-level permissions, SSO integration very early. So all of the usual stuff that you need to do to appeal to enterprise and even some initial onboarding and services handholding to make sure that it's successful. So, uh, but we have competitors in our category and they were a little further um, downstream. So they started at the, um, I wouldn't call it SMB end of the market, but certainly kind of um, hundred person company level maybe 100 to 500. So they were starting to get strong there. So that brought us down the market. So let's say we have growth as one category, kind of call it 100 to 500 uh, employee companies. Um, we have commercial next segment, 500 to about 5,000. And then uh, probably more than half now in enterprise, which is 5,000 plus employees. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. How big do you think, it's really interesting because enterprise is always like the way it's described is in the eye of the beholder. Like I can't tell you how many, different definitions of enterprise I've heard for that. So you started there. Was that like, and I know you you have funding, right? Or you're, you're a backed organization. You had your Series B in 21, right? Um, I guess, was that like, which, was that a big barrier with like going up to the enterprise with the, all the requirements with SOC compliance and, and things like that to get yeah. moving? Or like, what are some, what are some scars you could tell us about that? Because there's, massive amounts of tools that are being dropped right now and companies that are created. However, there's still that, you know, enterprise cost barrier, I think that exists, but love to hear your take on it. Enterprise is tough out of the gate when you're a four person startup, no question. You're not going to be SOC 2 compliant. You're not going to have all the features they need. So the enterprise learning for me is you need to find the rogue innovator 
that's willing to take a shot, whether they're betting their career on something, whether they're frustrated with something inside the enterprise that they need some influence over a small company, which is you know, a delicate balance. We can talk all about that, how much the tail should wag the dog. But in, in our case, it was finding somebody that believed in what we were doing in a couple large enterprises that said, this is unique. This is a lens. This is something that we need to do. We're, we don't have a solution. We have an internally baked solution that's costing us a lot of time. Let's see if we could actually co-build basically something with this company. So that's the reality. And um, in our early days, everything from getting paid was like trying to avoid procurement and credit carding level stuff, you know, in the early days with those wonderfully rogue, innovative um, buyers that we had. And then there's a certain point where you can't, you know, you can't run around the enterprise and you do have to buck up and spend the money on having legal put together the right contract, getting the right level of insurance and doing those level of costs. So again, it's like we bounced around finding enough innovators early on to get us enough ARR that could get us a level of funding that could get us a level of legal support, SOC 2 level. We didn't do SOC 2 right out of the gates, um, but permissions and some of the other features that were required. So it's a stage, it's a stepping you know, you know, game. And you know, again, I key advice, you're going to poke around the enterprise and you are going to find people that want to take a risk and will know how to navigate the labyrinth and the hairball and figure out how to get you in there, get you rolling. And then, and then of course you can, you know, it's the other challenge, Ryan, that, you know, it's really difficult to leverage that enterprise name publicly. They're not going to give you approval to put a big case study and a logo anywhere. So you're either roguing that and taking the risk of losing that current relationship, which we didn't do. Um, or you're kind of doing kind of the hush permission, which is on a per call basis. Our, we're sales led, not product right. led. So we could in our in our demos talk about um, at a high level some of the work that we're doing with a very large company that is you know uh, x many employees. It's in the space, and um, and then that leads to another you know potential innovative risk taker, and then you build from there. Right, right, exactly. And then you could do the rhymes with right rhymes with this. <laughs> This word <laughs> sounds like this word, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So, okay. So that, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I guess like, what, what do you think like is the under the, the, the enterprise categorization radar in terms of spend that companies could get away with without being SOC 2 compliant? And I, I'm just curious. Now. I had no idea I was going to ask you this question, but now I'm just curious what we're talking yeah, about. It's an interesting one. So, you know, so like there is kind of a magic number of 10K that I've been encountering my entire life of uh, roughly there's, you know, manager level approvals that can happen for an under 10K annual spent without needing to go up the level. Look, you know, an enterprise, it's getting tighter and tighter, like procurement, security, IT, um, compliance are all over everything. So I think what we got away with, you know, six, seven years ago is not what we could get away with today. It's getting tighter, particularly with NAI and the question of data and who can use the data and how it can do it. So, um, but I think, yeah, you, you, like we were way less concerned about the money in the early days. And we certainly weren't charging those early apostle big clients what we, um, you know, wanted to charge in the market. So, um, but yeah, I don't know if I had to pick a number, it'd be the 9999 <laughs> under 10K. 9999. Love that. How 
Hello, this is Ryan here. Real quick, if you are enjoying this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment or review. If you want more help or just want to learn more about what the top SaaS CEOs and founders are doing, check out my website at www.ryanstaley.io. Join my newsletter. Check out other free content resources I have there. And let me know if you want to scale your business. Now back to the episode. Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit. Let's talk about how you decided, like why and how you decided to take a, a year off and just be like, that's it, we're going around the world. I'm taking my family, let's do this, go. Building businesses is not easy. It's time consuming. Um, it's an all in ex- exposure. And so uh, for me, it was it was a very personal move. So seven years into building Vision Critical, zero to 500 employees, uh, now called Alita. And it was uh, a wonderful experience, but also taxing. And I had kids uh, born at the beginning of that journey. And I was looking at pictures of them at seven and eight years old and thinking, I have missed a lot of bed tuck-ins. And for me, I'm a very binary person. There's probably a lot of people listening to this that are binary. You're all in on whatever you do. And so I recognize that it's going to be very difficult for me to kind of be all in on a week vacation. So my binary approach to it was rent your house, buy around the world plane tickets, resign, and uh, and then try to do a life changing, you know, foundation building family experience that reconnected me with my family. Yeah, I think I'm a great move, man. And props to you. What was your favorite moment? Uh, it's hard to break it down. Maybe for experience, probably be a better question. What was your favorite experience on the the trip around the world? Uh, that's a fun one. That's a fun one. I'll give you two perspectives. I'll give you my own. So like people often ask, where would you go for two weeks? And, uh, you know, countries like Turkey and Peru are, you know, full of amazing experiences that I didn't expect, including like paragliding over the Blue Lagoon in uh, Turkey. And uh, that was frightful because they don't have the same regulations (laughs) as we do in the U.S. It's like going Bundy Court in Mexico, you know, it's like the same, same threshold of, of safety. So go ahead. It did feel a bit like that. Am I going to get any training? No, three, two, one, run, <laughs> you're in the air. Uh, that was a moment. Um, but, you know, one of the interesting moments uh, was one of my children that a month in, we were having dinner in some form, bizarre market. And uh, she looked over at us and said, okay, I get it. And we're like, what, what do you mean you get it? And she said, I, I get it. I know now why we're on this trip. You wanted me to understand how uh, well we have it at home and all the special privilege that we have. And of course, I was part of it. I wanted to show my kids the world and get some exposure to uh, a life that um, others have, that uh, they had access to some level of privilege. Um, and uh, <laughs> just to hear her say, and then literally she's like, can we go home now? Um, I, you've proven it. <laughs> and it was this moment of, yeah, no, we've got another uh, 11 months to go here, but it is. That was a month one. Is, that was a month uh, one. That, that, happened? that was month. That was literally month one. I'm, I'm, I'm missing all my friends. What have you done? You've taken me away. We're in this foreign land. You know, I'm, I'm hearing the call to prayer five times. I, I don't even know what that is. And just this like foreign exposure overload that was like, okay, I get it. We have a lot of privilege at home. Can we go back now? <laughs> so that was, that was just a fun, insightful moment. That's yeah. awesome. That's that's so funny. And it was a month in and and how old was your, so how old were your kids when you took them on the trip? Yeah, they were eight and nine by the time okay, we got How old yeah. are they now? Good timing. Uh, they're grown up. So it's they're 10 years later. Oh, wow. so, so 10 years um, ago. I did that. Okay. I did that when I was 40. Wow. Yeah. Okay, cool, man. Love that. That's so, that's so wild. 
right? That, I mean, hey, so props to you for raising your kids the right way that they realize that a month in, but not props to you for having to deal with that for the next 11 months, I guess. That's the down the downside of it, right? So... Uh, it's a very enlightening thing to do. So like we, we blow through life very quickly and it's the stream that carries us. And I think it's, it's, it's hard to take an idiot out of the stream and try and think about a re, reapproach, reframe to what you're doing. So for me as an entrepreneur, there are natural cycles. You start, you end, and whether they're successful or not, there's a start and an end and you're looking and thinking about what your next thing are is. And so um, I'm privileged in that way. Um, so this was an opportunity kind of to end one chapter before I started the next one, regroup mentally and understand it. So I was on this trip and I had 17 different ideas. And what I would do is as a new idea would emerge, I'd write it down. I think it was brilliant in the moment, laugh at myself a year later when I looked at it and saw it in another light. But in the moment you're writing it down and these are problems that you're looking at potentially solving to start a business. And so when I got back, um, I started vetting some of those ideas. And when I think about starting a company, advice that I often give is, does it pull on you? Does it continue to pull on you? And it's not a magic thing that is like, this is going to be a huge you know, business in the beginning. It's just a problem that you're continually running over in your mind and trying to solve. And I have this analogy of 100 smart person meetings. And if you can bounce that idea and truly ask those people on the other side to critique it, please tell me my haircut's ugly. Please tell me my baby is ugly because I don't want to spend 10 years of my life doing something And I, I, if, if it's not valid. So if you can get through those 100 smart person meetings in a way that creates more conviction for that business idea, you're in and it's off to the races. But each one of those meetings can chip away at your confidence, make you question, is it a good idea or not? And if you find yourself drifting, then, you know, I, that's where it's not an idea worth pursuing. So that dropped a number of my ideas off the ladder, off the, off the map. And then that's where Clue just kept coming. I just thought there's more I, the more I looked at the back of the napkin was every company in the world has competitors. There's systems of records for employees and for and customers, but there really isn't for competitors. And maybe the world needs that. Yeah. Well, obviously you're doing something right, you know, so um, congrats on you for sticking with it. Any, uh, let's, let's, let me ask you this question. It's probably, you weren't even expecting this one. What is, is one of those, you know, 15 to 17 ideas that fell off that now know what you know today that you know would be highly successful? Oh, okay. I, you definitely took me down the wrong path there. I thought the ones that I turfed because I had some really bad well, ideas well, in there for I sure. Think, you know, yeah. who's, who's, let me put it this way. I mean, and I don't, maybe it's the woman in the red dress, you know, from the Matrix movies. It's, it's still out there that you're like, hey, you know what? There's still some good opportunity here. And I don't want you to give away your next baby or whatever. But, you know, there's probably <laughs> one that you turf that you're like, hey, that, that's still legit. Anything that comes to mind as I ask you that question? Yep. Well, uh, legit, yes, because there's companies now doing it and have crushed it. And so one of the areas that I was really keen on was getting a dashboard of understanding of potential churn in your business. Okay. So what could it look like by, from a SaaS standpoint to figure out the levers that says this is an early indicator that they're going to leave you. And, you know, Gainsight has obviously done a wonderful job of creating an entire category yeah. around that. And there's many other companies that have kind of followed in their footsteps. So. You know, that was an idea back in like, I don't know, 2012 that was not well formed, 
And it was early and nascent. And I thought this is something that every SaaS company in the world is going to need. So, you know, I was zeroing in on that. And then, and then this is the other thing, like you get surprised with, oh, there's a $20 million funding round. That is going to be hard to compete against if I'm now behind the eight ball. Oh, and they acquired another company. And so those types of things either, again, embolden you or push you back on your journey. And for me, it was, I don't want to get in two things. One, didn't want to get into a race against somebody that was significantly better funded, that had the right idea in terms of how I was mm. thinking about it. I wouldn't, couldn't differentiate as much. Um, yeah. And two, you know, I was trying to look for something broader that wasn't just SaaS selling to SaaS, something that every department, every vertical, every size of company could use. So um, that's why I navigated away from that one. Love that. So you work outside of, it sounds like SaaS. Is SaaS is just a piece of the verticals you work with. It is. Yeah. Yeah. We have, uh, we have clients in many different verticals, manufacturing, um, health science, um, even business consulting. Uh, there's, there's many clients. I, I mean, at the end of the day, Ryan, do you have competitors? <laughs> <laughs> like it's no, pretty simple. I have no competitors. Yeah. No, of course not. Yeah. It's like, it's like saying the answer to that question. The cool thing is, it's like the equivalent. You can use this in your future sales calls if you want, but it's like you're interviewing someone and they're like, well, what's your, what's your, your, your biggest weakness that you have? They're like, well, I don't really have a biggest weakness, but if I did, it would be because I work too hard. Right. Like that's like the, the bullshit <laughs> answer. I don't want to say bullshit answer, but the inauthentic or non authentic answer that someone could have. Right. Yeah. And, All your investors on your, uh, on your, your pod would really appreciate the, no, I don't have any competitors answer to <laughs> how do you stack up against your competitors? Like it's pretty any. instant dismissal. I'm creating yeah. a new category, right? Like that's the new, yeah. uh, I don't have any uh, competitors type thing. That's right. So, um, okay. So one of the things that you talk about is a competitive revenue gap. And I love the concept of it when we, we talked through that earlier. Can you just kind of identify what that is? Because I think the way that you articulate that and execute the messaging is, is fantastic. So just walk us through that real quick. Sure. Yeah, this is, uh, I, I find it a compelling concept. This is the idea that, okay, take, take your pipeline. Any company has a sales pipeline. There's a bunch of opportunities in that pipeline. Getting through that pipeline, you're going to win a bunch of deals. Call it 20%. You're going to win. Let's say you have a $500 million pipeline. 50%, you're going to no decision. And then there's like 30%. So 150 million that you lost directly to competitors. Now, these are people that had budget, looked at you, looked at alternatives. They just pick someone else, different dance partner. That 150 million is the competitive revenue gap. And so I think you identify that kind of piece, that loss. And then there's a question of which deals within there could you have actually won? Well, the one that was connected, you know, the deals where your competitor has a relationship and their uncle is their CEO, well, they're a little more challenging, but there's a bunch that you should have won. So that's what, you know, I think companies like ours and others in the space are trying to focus on. How do you narrow that competitive revenue gap? If there are deals that you should have won, how do you win them? And um, there's a lot of CROs being dragged into board meetings today where they're being asked to say, how do you get more sales efficient? You're spending a lot on sales and marketing and it's not that efficient. And I think one of the fastest paths there is just saying, well, you've got deals in your pipeline where the competitor has beat you, outmaneuvered you, identify those competitors earlier in the deal, 
deposition them earlier, navigate around them, and mitigate them. And so there's a there's a direct correlation to kind of winning those competitive deals. But then there's other subtleties, which is if you do a good job of mitigating your competitor early in her deal, you're likely going to discount less at the 11th hour. It's not now a bake-off at the 11th hour. You guys look the same, and I can pick either of you who's going to give me a better right. price. If you built your value prop earlier, you're discounting less. So deal sizes are bigger. And then often deal duration is lower. So there's kind of three variables that we look at when you say identify that gap and then let's just progressively systematically go through and narrow it on a quarter by quarter basis. You got deals in your pipeline right now with competitors in them. What are your reps saying? How do we level up the reps that usually get beat by those competitors so that they're like your other reps that crush those competitors? Give them the talk tracks, understand the deal, which competitors are in a deal and have them win more of the deals they should have won. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's so much gold in what you said right there. Some diamonds in there as well. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things that makes sense to me is like, if you do that, and I like, I like the term deposition, the competitor at the beginning of the sales process. Cause like, if you do that, there, there's a couple of things, right? You can either set landmines or create landmines for them to step on uh, by just coaching the, the, pro- or the prospect on the right questions to ask. Or like, if you know enough about it, like, we used to have it down to we knew how our, the competitors were comped, like how the reps were compensated. And because of the way that that compensation model was designed, it caused the reps to propose solutions that weren't always in the best interest of the customer. And right. So like you could get down to that level of detail if you truly, truly understand your competition. And so I think I think you, you're you onto something huge there because there is no systemization for that or any tools or systems, you know, back back in the day. And, and even I think there's much more market too, because your solution's unknown and, and there's a lot of opportunity there. So you're definitely honest. No, thank you. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think, I think you just hit on something really valid. It's just like the knowledge of what they're doing at an intimate level, at every level gives you and your reps confidence. So you walk in with an educated prospect who's talked to your competitors and you know, what they're going to say, you know how they're going to maneuver. And so you're much more confident in the deal. But the other piece that I hearken on or I focus on is trust. You create trust with your prospect when you can elegantly talk about your market and your competitors and what they're going to hear from the competitor on the next call when they talk to them. And if you can be kind of in advance at that, and then the competitor walks into and does exactly what you're doing, oh, they're going to discount 50% right off the bat. And they're going to try and win your business on price. And if that's it, then we're not the player for you. Like that's the, if you're telling them that, then that happens. And then that prospect comes back to you and says, you know what? They did exactly that. And there's this trust that mm-hmm. builds. And so now everything you say from there is more believable. And I think deals are won and lost on some of these like pieces of trust. Equally so if you go in and you bash your competitors and say a bunch of things that are no longer true. They can't do this and they can't do that. They have no Gen AI built in their platform. And then literally that prospect gets a demo of their new Gen AI. Yeah. You look like an idiot. And so does that help you in your deal or does it mitigate trust? And deals are not won and lost by this wide margin. If we, we do win loss for a lot of our clients now, we go literally interview a bunch of clients um, uh, or, or deals that they lost or won. And we try and understand why they won or lost, right? So in that, we understand that people are like, it was a margin of like 3% that tipped them from going from one company to the next. 
And so many deals are that little oh, margin yeah. of tipping one way or the other. And so like that is the difference between a highly efficient sales team and an inefficient sales team, winning those little margins. Yeah, I mean, we lost a $18 million deal because there was 30 people involved in the sales process and we did not have access to one person in there because we didn't ask one solid question earlier in the process. We made an assumption, right? And now, granted, it was a great learning experience because we turned around and then got a $20 million deal from Amazon cold after that. So or I should say from a referral after that, but we leveraged everything that, you know, that one piece that we messed up on and then never forgot that again. So you're right. It is a game of inches. I mean, being the first loser on a deal like that sucks, especially when it's an RFP process and there's that many people involved because there's so much wasted time. So. Oh my gosh. I can relate to that. And I'm sure there's so oh. many listeners cringing going, Oh, that deal that I missed. Right? right. Yeah. Good. Well, and this is like, when I look at it, there's so many things that layer up and add up to like, how good is your rep? How much the enablement works? Like, how are you pricing? What's your product? And there's a bunch of things like all we focus on is the competitive yeah. piece. It's just understanding who they are and navigating around that. So we're one ingredient of many, but we're a really critical one in that tipping of the competitive deals. But there's so many other things, Ryan, that you're, you're, you're hitting on there. That one EDM that you didn't get to talk to that was the one. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. Well, here, I'll, I'll give the question because this often comes up. This is a question I'll never make the mistake. So it was, it was a solution that basically was consolidating different budgets and piecemeal solutions into one. And so we understood who owned the budget, but, and we understand who owned the budget afterwards, but we didn't understand who would be responsible for managing the program afterwards, right? We understood who managed it now, but not after the transformation was made. And then the other vendor cozied up to them. And so, you know, at, at the end of it, they were the person in the room that's like, no, this one's better. It was that, you know, 1%, 2% difference that equaled 100%, right? So um, anyways, crushing, crushing soul crushing blow that cost, <laughs> you know, my rep and myself at the time, probably half a million dollars. No big deal. Whatever. Just minor details. So anyways, let's let's shift gears a little bit because I know we're almost up on time. Um, what would you say is the single biggest challenge you have in growing the business right now? Because you're, you're doing very well organically. And so we'd love to hear, like, what's the biggest challenge? Because nothing goes perfect. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we we managed to raise you know our funding at the right time, and we've been a highly capital efficient company. So we're in this position where we can ignore the capital in the funding markets and have the money to invest. So one of the biggest challenges when you have that is what to invest in, where to spend your money, and also like to figure out where to cost cut as well. So you're kind of you're doing both. You're thinking about investment, and you're also making sure that you're staying capital efficient. So I think. That, that line is a really tricky line. And also communicating to 250 people why you're spending money on building this new product and hiring more engineers while you're pulling back on marketing budget in a particular you know tech vertical that might be in a bit of a headwind moment and spending on the manufacturing vertical or another vertical that proves more promising. I think communication of that and selection of what you're investing in versus what you're cutting is... Um, Right now in 2023, when you're tech selling a tech is one of the hardest lines to find. It's a bit like if you want to buy that bike or that car or go on that vacation, you need to sacrifice a bunch of Uber Eats and the <laughs> Starbucks every morning. Like, so you're cheap because you're sacrificing Uber Eats, but you're investing in putting that else, money into yeah. something you really care about. And I think 
I think that's a delicate balance, I think, for a lot of SaaS companies. It certainly is for us. And, you know, connected to that is just focus of there are so many opportunities for us right now. There's companies that are struggling that represent acquisition targets that we could play a role in. There's new categories of information and products and software that we might be able to venture into. Do we do that? And then see canons of the companies that are in that category start to get pointed to us. And so I think, I think focus again, back to kind of the original premise, we're still, we're still a, um, I will, well, any startup that is losing money is still a startup. And we are in that process of growing into, you know, a predictable growth, hopefully profitable one day company and focus remains one of the core issues. Oh. Well, that's, I mean, that's great feedback and makes a lot of sense. Uh, it sounds like you're in a great position though, like compared to, a lot of other organizations that, that I've spoken to. So unfortunately, we're up on time. So where can people find out more about you, Jason Smith? And where can they find out more about Clue with a K? Yeah, appreciate the Clue with a K. Yeah, so Clue.com. Yeah, we've got uh, a lot of resources there. If you're interested in competitive at all, we've got a lot of resources that we can provide to folks um, that are free. And you can use that. You don't need Clue software. You've got a lot of free ones. So, so check that out. And then on LinkedIn, you can just look for Jason Smith and Clue with a K. And uh, we can connect or follow me there. Clue with a K. I say that all the time. No, you're <laughs> all right, Jason. Well, it was a pleasure having you on the show, man. It was a ton of fun. Love hearing about your journey, everything that you've done, where you're going. And uh, the utility of your product, man, I, I could imagine probably 15 different use cases for it. So appreciate being here, Ryan. Thank you. All right. Well, and thank you for listening. I appreciate you being on the show with us. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for checking out the Scale Up Show. My mission in life is to help founders and revenue leaders avoid all the pain and suffering in revenue growth so they can flip it and create a life of their own design. So if you enjoyed this show, please like, review, share it on social, and more importantly, just share it with a friend. Share it with someone that you think could learn and benefit from what you heard on today. But the more we get the message out, the more people we could help, the bigger the impact we make, and the bigger the community gets, which helps everybody. So once again, thank you for being a loyal listener. I appreciate you and look forward to seeing you on the next episode.